Well, let's pray together and ask God to meet us in his word. What a rich morning, Lord, you're giving to us. Thank you for worship. Thank you for communion, for the cross, for your presence here. And Lord, I pray that right now you would unleash the power of your word. Um, We've all got blind spots. I do. We all do. Your word is a gift from you to help us see our blind spots. Help us see our blind spots this morning. Help me see mine. Help each of us see ours. Show them to us because you, because you love us, because you want to restore us, and you want to help us. So come, help me, open our hearts, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Good. Uh, it was about 15 years ago. Uh, Jan and I were at the beach in Santa Cruz with our kids, kids Ann and Brad, a long time ago. They were playing in the sand and the water. Um, and I was reading a book, and I remember, I remember this day being there reading this book because I was struck by a quote in this book by Billy Graham. It just stunned me. Here's what Billy Graham said. I can't quote it exactly, but here's the gist of it. He, he was wondering if in evangelical, Bible-believing, Christ-exalting churches, he was wondering if, if in that kind of a church, even half of the people in those churches, genuinely were trusting Jesus. If even half of the people in evangelical, Bible-believing churches were, you really had saving faith, were really saved from their sins. And reading that just, first of all, it just sobered me about myself. I mean, am, so I'm, I'm a paid pastor. That, that makes me raise questions sometimes. It's like, how much of this is just because I, I, I support ourselves this way, and how much of this, you know, you have to ask that question. And then it made me, and, it, and it's causing the elders, us elders, to, to just say, Lord, we are responsible to do all we can to make sure that everyone here is really trusting you, not just playing games, not just doing a religious thing, but really knowing you and trusting you. So it, it raised questions about my own heart. It's, it's given us a sense of burden, Lord, before the Lord for what, what we're doing here. And the reason I thought of that quote was because in our next section in James' letter, he raises the similar concern about the people he's writing to. It's in James chapter 2. It's verses 14 through 19. I know your teaching insert says 14 through 26, but I'm only going to go through verse 19 this morning. So let's turn to James chapter 2, verse 14. Um, We'd like you all to have a Bible you could open up and study with us, because the Bible is the important words here, much more than mine. So raise your hand, we'll bring a Bible to you if you don't have one. James chapter 2, verse 14 is on page 1012 in the Bibles that we're passing out. Let me remind you of what this letter is. It's a letter written by James. James was a leader in the church in Jerusalem, uh, part of the eldership team there. And around the year 42 AD, a serious persecution broke out in Jerusalem, and hundreds of believers had to flee for their lives, leaving behind Clothes, possessions, money, businesses, homes. Many of them fled with just the clothes on their backs. They fled into North Palestine and into Syria. And so James writes this letter to them to strengthen them. And we've, we've studied this letter, so we've seen that James, first of all, he encourages them, keep trusting Jesus during this difficult time. 
he comforts them. Your, your loss of social status doesn't count diddly squad. doesn't mean anything compared to what you have in Jesus Christ. So be strengthened, be encouraged. When you need wisdom, ask Jesus. He will always give you all the wisdom that you need. When you're tempted, fight that temptation with the power of the scriptures. He says, in the end of chapter 2, end of chapter 1, care for the widows and the orphans that are in your midst. And don't start showing partiality to the poor, thinking that that's how you're going to get ahead in your, in your difficult, needy state. So these are the things that he's been teaching them. But then starting in chapter 2, verse 14, he, he raises an issue that you can tell by his language deeply concerns him. Something has happened to some of the people in, in this body of believers that he's heard about And he is deeply concerned. Look at what he says in verse 14. What problem is James concerned about? Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? Okay, so he's talking about people who say they have faith in Jesus, but they don't have works. Let's take those one at a time. He's talking about people, first of all, who say they have faith in Jesus. These are not people who deny Jesus Christ. These are people who say, I trust in Jesus. I have faith in Jesus. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. They believe that Jesus died on the cross and rose from the dead. They say they have faith in Jesus, but they don't have works. What does that mean? Well, James gives us an illustration in verses 15 and 16. Here's what it means to not have works. Look at verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So here's his illustration of this is what it means to not have Works. So let's just make it more contemporary. Let's say that there's somebody in your home group, okay? A guy in your home group who's lost his job and is running out of money, has no food, no money for food or clothes. Now, Jesus, in the Gospels, very clearly would call us to give food to this brother, give clothing to this brother, give money to this brother. Okay, that's what Jesus would call us to do. But if all we do is just wish them well and don't give him food, clothes, financial provision, then we're not obeying Jesus. We're disobeying Jesus. And so that's what James means when he talks about works. Works means obeying Jesus. Not having works means settling for disobeying Jesus. So here's the problem he's addressing. People that he's heard in this group of refugees who fled north from Jerusalem, and this may apply to some of us, people who say they have faith in Jesus, but are not obeying Jesus. People who say they have faith in Jesus, but they've settled for not obeying Jesus. So, would this include any of us? Is this any of us? Now, James is not talking about people who perfectly obey Jesus, okay? James chapter 3, other verses in James and all through the scriptures, it's very clear that this side of heaven, no follower of Jesus will ever perfectly obey Jesus. 
That's clear. So we're not talking about perfection in obedience here. The question is, though, are there areas in our lives where we know what Jesus calls us to do and we've settled for not doing it? Is that true of any of us? You know what Jesus calls you to do. There's an area of your life where you know what he calls you to do, but you've settled for not doing it. Let's take some examples. Jesus calls us to let his words abide in us. To, to read his words, to meditate on his words, to learn his words. Okay, so anyone here this morning where you'd say, I, I have faith in Jesus, but I have settled for not, not reading scripture. If that is you, James would be deeply concerned about you. Deeply concerned. Another example. James call, uh, Jesus calls us to be devoted to prayer. Luke 18, 1 through 8, for example, many different passages. Be devoted to prayer. So would any of us say we have faith in Jesus, but we've settled for not praying? James would be deeply concerned if that would be the case. Jesus calls us to love each other, to lay our lives figuratively down for each other. So anyone here where you'd say, I, I have faith in Jesus, but, but you have settled for not loving brothers and sisters in that way, not having a group of brothers and sisters that you're laying your life down for. James would be deeply concerned. Another example that maybe hits closer to home, convicting me and what we're working on this summer Jesus calls us to center our lives around advancing the gospel with our neighbors, people at work, friends. That's what Jesus calls us to do. Anyone here who say we, we have faith in Jesus, but we've settled for not advancing the gospel in our lives. James would be deeply concerned. You can think of examples. You know, Jesus calls us to forgive. Jesus calls us husbands to love our wives. He calls you wives to love your husbands. He calls uh, dads to lead their families devotionally. Lots of different things we can mention, but there's, there's, Jesus has called us to live a, a lifestyle, to live a certain way. And if any of us would say we have faith in Jesus, but we have settled for not obeying Jesus in some area, James would be deeply concerned. That's why he's writing this section of the letter. Now, why is he so concerned? I mean, these people say that they have faith in Jesus. That's a good thing, right? I mean, they, they say they're trusting Jesus, so they're saved, right? Read verse 14 again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works, can that Faith, save him. Can that faith save him? What's the answer? Is it, is it yes or no? You can read through the rest of the passage and you'll see the answer is no. The Greek, though, makes it crystal clear uh, because there's a way of asking a question in Greek where the author can tell you the answer is no. Okay? So what James is saying is, can that faith save him? No! Okay? So the, the, it's, it's absolutely clear. So, so here's the issue. Just, just let this show us any blind spots we might have. 
If you think you have faith in Jesus, but you have areas in your life where you have settled for not obeying Jesus, then your faith will not save you. It's plain as day. See that? It's just right there. Verse 14. And that's why James is so concerned. See, James loves his flock. He cares about these believers. He knows them personally. He's heard about this weird teaching some of them have been promulgating or or just how some of them are really deceived in this area. He loves them. He cares for them. He's probably writing this with tears. The reason I want to have you get this passage is because I love you. I care about you. We elders are going to give an account for you before the Lord Jesus. One day, we have to do everything we can to make sure that no one misses it. So we care. And so please take this warning to heart. Just don't know justification, rationalization, yeah, but just get it. If you say you have faith in Jesus, but there's areas in your life where you have settled for not obeying him, your faith will not save you. Which means you're not saved. You're not saved. And there's nothing more important than being saved. So let's just try to feel the importance of being saved. Let's just try to get that back into our minds. I mean, we can think like it's more important like who's going to win the World Cup or you know, all these different things we can think about. Man, nothing, I mean, nothing compares to what it means to be saved. First of all, all of us need to be saved. All of us have rebelled against God knowingly, fully, so persistently, even though God's patient and slow to anger, finally, in his justice, he's had to condemn all of us to eternal punishment before him in hell. This is why we need to be saved. This is default. This is where we've all started. But God loves to save people. He loves to save people. And just like we celebrated with communion this morning, he sent his own son, Jesus. And God the Father punished his own blameless son for our blame. Punished his own sinless son for my sin, for your sin. And Jesus willingly came and was willing to be punished, sinless Jesus, for my sin, for your sin. And so because of what Jesus did in being punished in our place, the moment that you turn and put trust in Jesus, the moment you turn from whatever else you've been trusting, for your identity, your security, your heart satisfaction, your future, turn away from all those things and put your trust in Jesus alone. I trust you, Jesus, my Savior, my Lord. Knowing you, you are my heart's satisfaction. The moment you turn and put your trust in Jesus, boom, forgiven, completely forgiven. Just like Joel read from Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far he removes your transgressions from you. All of them, past, present, and future, completely forgiven. No more judgment, no more prospect of hell. Being with Jesus Christ in his loving presence and fellowship with him forever. So all through your life, starting now, tomorrow, the next week, God's love is going to be poured out upon you. God's care, helping you, guiding you, providing for you, forgiving you, strengthening you. All through the rest of your life here and into eternity, God's love poured out upon you forever. That's what it means to be saved. Have you been saved? Now, if you haven't been saved... If you haven't been saved, 
If you say you have faith in Jesus, but you have an area of your life where you're settling for not obeying Jesus, then you're not saved. You are not forgiven. As you look ahead to your future, you will be punished for your sins. You'll be punished forever for your sins. You will be, if you're not saved. And this this is huge. This is just, this is so important. Right now, don't let anything cause you to miss this. There's, there's probably lots of spiritual warfare happening in our souls and our minds. You know, Satan trying to say, oh man, you know, what do you do for your dad? You better call him, you know, and what about this, what about that? Just put all that stuff aside. Call your dad, yes, but put all that stuff aside for now. And just get this. If you say you have faith in Jesus, but there's an area of your life where you're settling for not obeying him, that faith that you think you have It's not going to save you. You're not saved. Unless something changes, you won't be saved. Now, don't miss the reason why. Okay, we're all kind of wired to try to earn our way into heaven, try to earn our status or our righteousness before God. Why are you not saved? It's not because you haven't obeyed enough to earn forgiveness. It's not why. It's not like, okay, well, I need 100 obedience points to earn forgiveness. I've only got 75. I just got to work on the other 25 obedience points and I'll be in. Not at all. It's not what James says. Look again at verse 14. Notice why you wouldn't be saved. Read verse 14 again. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? The problem isn't that you aren't obeying enough to earn salvation. The problem is that if your faith is the kind that lets you settle for disobeying Jesus, it's not saving faith. It's not saving faith. That kind of faith can't save you. We're only saved by faith, but if that's the kind of faith you have, that kind of faith doesn't save you, is what James is saying. The problem is your faith. Okay, you get that? So don't think, okay, I'm going to really try hard to obey from now on. Really, I'm going to get serious about this obedience thing. That's not the issue. That won't save you either. There's only one way to be saved. By faith. Now, why then can't that faith save me? Why? Why? Imagine that you were in a little sailboat. My dad used to take a sailing. He loved to sail down Balboa Bay, down Newport Beach, okay? Imagine you're at a little, he had a little sabot, little, like a, about an eight-foot-long thing, and there's this life preserver sitting in the boat that you're thinking, okay, good. If anything goes wrong, that will save me. Well, imagine how, how, how horrifying it would be to have something go wrong. Sabot takes a dive and is gone, and there's this little life preserver floating around, and you oh, swim over and grab it, and also just like it just like, like dissolves or like it's just not there. Think of how horrifying that would be? Well, I mean, how tragic to think that the faith you have will save you only one day to find out that it won't. You feel that? This is the time to test the life preserver. This is the time to test your faith. So why can't that faith save me? James gives three reasons, verses 17 through 19. First reason, if you think you have faith in Jesus, but you're settling for not obeying him, then your faith is dead, 
James says. Look at verse 17. So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Okay? How much can a dead person help you? None. How much can dead faith help you? None. It's dead. Second reason. Your faith is imaginary. If you think you have faith in Jesus, but you're settling for an area of disobedience, settling for disobedience, just settle with that, then your faith is imaginary. Now, verse 18 is is where I think James is saying that. I just have to tell you, verse 18 is a really hard verse to figure out. There's one, actually a couple New Testament commentators who said, this has got to be the hardest verse in the whole New Testament to figure out. So so I'm I'm feeling okay. But let me just give you you my best shot, which is what... How, how most commentators conclude. Here's what I think is going on in verse 18. Um, James has just said, if there's no works, then you don't have saving faith. If someone has no works, there's no saving faith. But then in verse 18, he anticipates somebody objecting and saying, no, no, no. Faith and works are two entirely separate, unconnected things. They're, they're entirely separate and connected. You can have faith all by itself, saving faith all by itself, and... I can have works all by myself. They're, they're entirely unconnected. But look at what James, or here, that's the objection, verse 18. Someone will say, you have faith, I have works. So this person says, saving faith and works can be all by themselves, entirely unconnected, entirely separate. James disagrees. The rest of verse 18, he says, show me your faith apart from your works. You can't. I will show you my faith by my works, because saving faith always results in works. Okay, so the point is just simply, if there's no works, faith is imaginary. It's not there. Okay, it's just a figment of your imagination. Third reason why that faith can't save you is that it's no different than the faith that demons have. Shocking verse. Look at verse 19. He says to his readers, You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe. And shudder. Even the demons believe. There's a kind of faith that the demons have. Are the demons saved? No. Okay, that's clear from from the scriptures. But there's a kind of faith that even the demons have. What, What kind of faith do the demons have? It's just an intellectual agreement with doctrines. Do the demons know that there's a God? Yes. When Jesus cast demons out, did they know he was the Son of God? Yes. Do they, do they know that Jesus died on the cross to pay for sins? Yes. Do they know that Jesus rose from the dead? Yes. They believe all those things. They would get a 100% on a doctrinal test. Demons, they know better than... I wouldn't say that. We know better than they do. But they, they would get it 100% on the test. They agree with all of these different things. And what James is saying is that if we say we have faith in Jesus, but there's areas of our lives where we're settling for disobeying Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, then we're just like the demons. We just, we just believe facts that have no relevance for our lives. Yes, he's the Son of God. Yes, he died on the cross. Yes, he rose again. Yes, yes, yes. Okay, now let me live my life. It's just... Intellectual agreements. Okay, so what should we do? Let's say you're listening to this and you're saying, um, this is me. This is me. I, I, would, I, I would say I have faith. Anybody who would have asked me this morning, do you have faith? I would have said yes. But I have areas of my life where I know what Jesus calls me and I, 
I've just settled for it. I don't care that I'm disobeying. I'm just, I'm just knowingly, willingly, unrepentantly, unconfessingly disobeying him. James would say that my faith then won't save me. What, what can I do? Let's just make it real tangible by taking uh, the example James gives in verses 15 and 16. Okay, let's just take a, a concrete example. This is his example of, of somebody with no works. So again, there's somebody in your home group who has lost his job, and you know that Jesus calls us to help each other financially, and this brother is being responsible, he's been very careful with his money, it's not a matter of you enabling him in some way, but you just don't want to give him any money. Just don't want to. My money. Okay? That's what's going on here. What would James tell you to do then? First, he would say, understand how serious this is. Okay, let's just revisit that point. Knowingly, unrepentantly, settling for disobedience to Jesus is terribly serious because, like James said in verse 14, that faith won't save you. It won't save you. Again, we're not talking about perfection here. Is anybody thinking we're talking about perfection? Don't, okay? <laughs> Please, you'll be devastated. Um, we're not talking about perfection here. I'm not talking about, Jesus, help me. I want to obey. I'm struggling with this area. Please help me, brother. Pray for me. That's, that's faith. That's saving faith, okay? We're talking about, ah, I don't want to give my money. I don't care what Jesus says. Ah, forget it. That's not saving faith. Do, do you feel the difference? Really important here. It's a very big difference. But just like James says in verse 14, if you think you have faith in Jesus, but you are willingly, knowingly settling for disobedience in an area, that faith won't save you. Unless something changes, you won't be saved. Unless something changes, you're going to face God's judgment forever. Please don't miss this. Please, please don't miss this. This is huge. Second, so first, understand how serious this is. Second, don't think works will save you. I'm going to say this again, because we tend to go there, many of us. It's not that, okay, it's, it takes 100 points of obedience. I've only got 75, so okay, I'm going to give, I'll, I'll give to him. I'll, I'll give to him, okay, I'll give to him. It's not it. Nothing's changed with the faith. The heart still is, is a mess. You can't do anything to earn God's forgiveness. You can't obey enough to merit God's forgiveness. If you try to get saved by changing the works side of the equation first, you'll not be saved. Okay? The only thing that can save you is faith in Jesus. And that's the third point. Understand that. Remember verse 14? Can that faith save you? The answer is no. That kind of faith can't save you. But there's only one way to be saved, and it's by genuine faith. Genuine, authentic trust in Jesus. Not just agreeing with doctrines, okay? Understand, the demons would agree with all the doctrines that you agree to. That's not the difference. The difference is, the demons don't trust who they are to Jesus Christ. That's the difference. Genuine saving faith means trusting all of who you are to all of who Jesus has promised to be to you. That's faith. You trust all of who you are 
to all of who he's promised to be. But see, the fact that you've settled for an area of disobedience shows that you don't have saving faith. So there's a problem. Only You can only be saved by faith in Christ, but you don't have that. That's the point of number three. So then what do you do? Number four, pray. Ask Jesus to give you genuine saving faith. Now listen, no matter how unspiritual you feel, no matter how you know, you're, you're searching, is there any evidence of faith in there? It's like, yikes, it's just really like stone cold hard. It doesn't make any difference. If you will from the heart cry out to Jesus to change your heart, he will change your heart. He loves you. He cares about you. He, I mean, my heart got changed yesterday. I was so sad about something yesterday afternoon. And I was telling Jan, I'm just feeling so sad about this. And she's always so sweet and so encouraging, but she can't change my heart. If any, if any woman could, it'd be her, okay? Big time. But, and she does sometimes. But, uh, but the Lord changed my heart yesterday. I just was crying out to him, and my heart was, three hours later, my heart was changed. It was changed. He changed me. He will give you faith. He will pour faith out upon you. He will lavish faith out upon you. Ask him. Ask him. Ask him from the heart. And he will. He will. I believe, help my unbelief. Remember the man in Mark 9, I think it is? Jesus loved that prayer. So pray and ask him. Then Romans ten seventeen, Paul says, faith comes from hearing God's word. So that's the fifth point. Find relevant promises in God's word. The focus of faith is promises. We entrust all of who we are to all of what Jesus, who Jesus has promised to be to us. Find relevant promises. Think about it like this. Every command in the Bible is motivated by a promise somewhere in the context of the passage. That should be the motivation for obeying the command, is that you trust the promise. So when we're not obeying Jesus' commands, it's because we're not trusting him to do what he's promised. Let me give you an example. Turn to Luke chapter 6, verse 38. This is page 863. 863 in the Bibles we just passed out. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Here's where Jesus tells us to give to the brother in the home group. I want you to, to feel this. Oh, this is good news. Remember when my dad taught me this? just blew my mind. Turned my Christian life upside down. The importance of the promises for obeying the commands. Oh, this is life. This is just life-giving. So Luke 6, 38. Jesus says, give. Here's the command. Okay? Now everything else in this verse is a promise. All right? Give, and it will be given to you. Good measure. Pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use in giving others, it will be measured back to you. So what's Jesus promising here? If you give away money, you will be lavishly given to by him. Now, don't make the mistake that some prosperity preachers make and make this, well, this is how you get rich. Like, you know, you give 10, you're going to get back 100. It's not what Jesus taught, okay? What Jesus is saying here is, you give to others, first of all, he will lavishly pour out upon you the heart-satisfying gift of his Holy Spirit, even more satisfying your heart 
and he will take care of every other need you ever have. Every other need that you ever have. Okay, you won't get the mansion up on the hill or the whatever, okay? Blah, blah, blah. That totally misses the point, all right? What Jesus is saying here is, if you will give to your brother, I will so pour out my love and my presence upon you, you will be so filled with my living, heart-satisfying presence, and I will take care of every need you will ever have. Now, now think about this. If you believed that, if you really believed that giving to this brother in your home group you would be receiving the outpouring, heart-satisfying presence of Jesus Christ and that he would take care of everything else you'd ever need. If you believe that, what would you do? (laughs) You'd give, right? I'm I'm waiting. it's, It's not a trick question. You'd give. I mean, seriously, if you believed that giving to this brother you're going to have even more of the heart-satisfying presence of Jesus and all of your needs will be met, you'll give. If you don't give, do you believe that? No. If you don't give, you're not trusting Jesus. You don't have saving faith. You're not trusting him. You still believe, oh, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he's the son of God. Yes, but I'm not trusting him for this. You're not trusting him. This is where you want to focus your attention. Find relevant promises. This is where your faith would be deficient if you weren't giving to your brother. So any area of disobedience, find the relevant promises. What Jesus promises to be to you as you obey that promise. You're not trusting that. Trust it. Your heart will be changed. So sixth then, meditate on that promise until you are fully trusting Jesus. So you just open up Luke 6, 38. Okay, Jesus, you promised that if I give to this brother, it'll be given to me. I don't really want to give to him. I'm thinking about buying that whatever. I'm thinking that's going to satisfy me more than you. I'm an idiot right now. Help me to see this more clearly. You've got to preach to yourself. Be, be tough on yourself. It's the truth. Okay, we are. Jesus, help me. Help me to see this. And you, you, you ask him for his help. You pray over the scriptures. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ as you hear his word with prayerful, humble, repentant hearts. The Holy Spirit will start to stir faith. So you start to, he will. If I give, it will be given to me. It'll be given to me good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, put into my lap. I want to give generously. Jesus will so satisfy me with himself and take care of every other need I'm ever going to have. And then when you trust this promise, like I said, you'll give. And as you give, you'll be demonstrating that your faith in Jesus is genuine. You're giving for Jesus' sake. You're giving to receive more of Jesus will show that the faith you have is saving faith. It will save you. You'll be assured and confirmed that your eternity is taken care of. So what questions does that raise? What thoughts does this stir up? Yeah, that's a good question. But again, notice the difference here. The question Dale is asking is, you know, I'm I'm giving, I want to give, can I give more? It's not, I don't want to give. Okay? So that's just a night and day different question here. All right? There's there's times where Paul says, don't give. Okay, so there's more to the story all right, we don't want to enable people, whatever else. So, but that's a whole different question than saying, I don't want to give. 
So the fact that you're struggling with, I want to, can I still, what should I do, Jesus? You're in, man. That's, that's saving faith. See the difference? So it's really important to hold on to that. Well, you, you, ask, you ask Jesus, uh, how, much, how much do you want me to give? Jesus, what do you want me to do? I want to give. If you, if you tell me to, I will. What do you want me to do? This person, just ask him. And he'll, he'll give you wisdom and he'll give you clarity. He'll give you leading. Right on. I mean, you've you, you, you got to do what God's... Right, because you could, you could go under and then that'd be irresponsible. I mean, you could give away all your money immediately and then... And this is what Jesus calls you to do. Okay? He calls provision and there's, there's lots of other... But the difference is your heart. You, you, you want to give. You're asking, can I give? You're not saying, I don't want to give. I'm not going to give. Good question. Let me answer, and then some of you can maybe help me be even more clear. Um, if you're struggling with an area of sin, that is a rich sign of saving faith. Right? If you're struggling with it, it's like, oh, Jesus, I want to give. I, I, I want to be free from this lust. I, I want to be more humble and more forgiving. Help me. That's saving faith. Struggling with sin is saving faith. Settling for disobedience is not. So the word I, th- I thought the word I thought I used was if we're settling for disobedience in an area, then the faith we think we have isn't saving faith. Is that the word I used? I, I try to be very careful to use if we settle for sin, then that shows that our faith isn't saving unless something changes. If we're struggling to be obedient in an area, I mean listen. No saved person goes through a day without struggling to obey. Right? Hello? We've been struggling. I've been struggling this morning. Back there in that room, praying scriptures, I'm to trust you, Lord, change my heart. You know, right? I mean, it's a fight. So if you're fighting, saving faith. If you're like kicking back in the chaise lounge every day, problem. Does that make sense? Ah... Uh, we all should care about widows and orphans in our hearts. Okay, that's not deed though yet. Um, I would be slow to say any specific tangible action. The more specific I would make it, the more nervous I'd be. Yeah, do I, do I care enough to be asking the Lord, what do you want me to do? Are there any orphans here? Are there any widows here that we could care for better? Um, is there, Lord Jesus, is there, like some, is there some way I could uh, contribute to a fund that would uh, enable adoptions, possibly? Do you, want, do you want me to? I mean, Jan and I have wondered about adopting. You know, we're, we're old, but, you know, I mean, just to be asking those questions. But, but the more specific we get in terms of we all ought to, like, adopt or we all ought to have a specific widow that we're supporting, I'd be nervous about pressing the specifics too much. Does that make sense? Yeah, and, and I'm sure that in the context of this group of homeless refugees, there were widows and orphans who were being neglected. Some probably got away from Jerusalem. They had business interests up in Syria, whatever. They were like fat and sassy, okay? They were doing fine. And there were widows and orphans, part of the homeless refugees, who weren't. And so in the context of what James is talking about here, there's widows and orphans in your midst you've got to be dealing with. So, so that's, that's kind of a vague answer, but I'm not sure that I could be less than somewhat vague. Yeah, and, and again, the point that James is bringing up here is there's an area where you are knowingly settling for disobedience. Okay? And that, I'm stating it strongly because that's what James is talking about here. You're, you're, you're knowingly 
So you know about this. You know. And you're knowingly settling for disobedience. That's what James is concerned about here. Uh, start with the first one, and that is, I, I would be nervous if, uh, if, if, if I had an area of knowing disobedience in my life, and I'm saying, um, uh, uh, God will work that in me later on. I, I'm, not, I'm not sure that's, what, that's wisdom. Now, we all know that we grow over time. Okay, we all know that we're growing more and more and more week after week, month after month, year after year. So we grow. But I'm not sure it's ever wise to have an area of your life where you say, I know what you're telling me to do here. I'm not going to do it. I just, I don't, I can't reconcile that with, there's just too many scriptures that, like this one, or Hebrews 10, the warnings, that, that would, would say, no. Maybe it's the heart attitude. If I've settled for disobedience in that area, that's dangerous. If I'm struggling, Lord, help me to grow here. I'm really weak in this area. Help me. Help me. And he will help you. And, and then you're fine. That's faith. Well, God can certainly do that. I mean, I can be stubborn for 80 years, and he can change me in year 81. Okay? But it would be presumptuous of me to think, I can be stubborn for this next year and it'll be fine. James would say, it won't. You have, don't say that. In fact, if you say that, that's presumptuous and it might definitely not. So I, I, I'm not sure, I don't want to have us talking past each other, but I, I think I would just urge all of us to be longing and seeking and struggling, I mean, that's the wrong word, but fighting to obey in every area that we're aware of. Growth in all those areas will come over time. But don't settle. Don't knowingly settle saying, I'm just not going to obey you here, Jesus. I don't think the scripture gives us any grounds to say that and be able to sleep well at night. We can talk more afterwards if you want to. Okay, we should stop. If you have another question, email me. But here's, here's my encouragement. I, I'm sure, just because of the size of group here, that there's people here where you, you would say you trust Jesus and you're really troubled by what you're hearing here this morning. Because there is an area of your life, there's areas of your life where you are knowingly settling for disobedience. And you've got your excuses, you've got your rationales, but just throw all the excuses out. Please, please, please. James would say, uh, that faith won't save you. Jesus, though, he's, he's got his arms open to you right now. He will help you. He loves you. He's asking you to come. He will empower you. He will enable you. He will give you faith. He will bring about change in those areas. But if you say, I'm going to settle for it, then you're going to miss all of that. And unless something changes, you won't be saved. This is very, very big. So let's stand together. God, I pray for your power to come upon us right now. Oh, Jesus, please, please, don't let anyone leave here who needs to hear this. Don't let them leave here without really getting it. I pray that you would just make your truth crystal clear. Crystal clear. I pray, Lord, that you'd bring conviction with a sense of your love and your 
warm invitation and your offer of grace and your offer of forgiveness and your offer of change. Oh Lord, thank you that you will change us when we turn to you. We can come to you as we are and you will change us. You change us. We can't change ourselves. You will change us. And so there's good news here for every single person in this room. I just pray, Lord, that no one here would continue knowingly settling for disobeying you. Please, Lord, bring your power. Bring about the change right now, I pray. And if if you are in a place where you have been knowingly settling for disobeying Christ, I would encourage you to to come on up when we're done here and let's talk. There will be other people here to pray with you. Um, have someone else pray. We'll keep it all you know, private and, and we'll respect your confidentiality. But we would love to pray for you. So Lord, I pray that you would just bring your word and your encouragement and the gospel strongly to us now. That we would all be turning to you with fresh faith and thankfulness for your grace and fresh reliance on you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.